Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit is which, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, then let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its root. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for its power power to create, power to recreate us and to renew us and transform us. And I pray, Father, as we look into your word this day, that you will do what only you can do in our hearts, in our minds, in our habits and actions, in the priorities that we have in life. Father, may we die to ourselves this day and live to you. May your spirit Fill us completely and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Good to have you here. Hey, have you ever lost something? Anybody ever? Raise your hand if you've lost something before. Marty, come on. Raise your hand. You've lost something. Well, I have, I have two things that I have learned to do when I lose something or when I'm trying to find something valuable or when I'm seeking something additional to what I don't have right now. First thing I do is pray. I learned that from my precious wife. After many times searching for something, she'd say, have you prayed about it? Nope. Okay. Start praying. There it is. And the other thing I've learned is that when I'm trying to find something that I'm missing, that it's good to sometimes step back. Like if I, if I know I've put something somewhere in the garage, Instead of going through every single thing in the garage, I'll just sort of step back and scan the whole big picture of maybe one side of the garage because I might see something that might make me recall where I've put it. But if that doesn't work, then I move in a little bit closer and I begin to look at things up close and personal. That's what Grant and I are going to attempt to do as we teach God's Word to you, is that he's taking you in close and personal, verse by verse. I'm going to help you to step back then and just see the bigger picture. And because that's, that's really needed to understand the word. You have to understand the main components, the bigger picture of creation, fall, rescue, and, and restoration. But you also have to come in closer 
to be able to dig up nuggets that God might want you to have for a specific time and purpose in your life. So we're going to kind of come up, get in close, step back a little bit, get in close, step back a little bit, okay? Kind of that plan. But for now, we're going to look at creation. So if you will, open your Bibles to Genesis 1. And uh, thank you, Joanne, for reading that passage. That was a little longer scripture reading than normal, but you did a great job with it. So I appreciate your efforts there. Lord, I just pray you'll speak to us now. Help, help these two chapters to come to life in our mind. Help us to gain uh, an appreciation, to stand in awe of who you are and the creation that you have made and that we are part of it. And that you have a purpose and plan for us within this creation. So open our hearts to truth today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share seven things that I think are kind of important that we need to look at in terms of these first two chapters in Genesis on creation. The first one was that creation was God's idea and doing. You're thinking, duh. Well, I mean, you know, come on. Well, there's some people in the world that might question that or even say that's, that's not true. Creation just kind of started. It started with a, a little speck of slime and grew from there. So to, 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 I know it's kind of obvious, but I think it's important that we recognize creation was God's idea and he created. It was his doing. Now, it's, uh, the first verse of the Bible makes it very clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It wasn't man. It wasn't the evolutionary process. It was God who created. When you don't know that truth, when it's not a part of who you are, then turn to, if you will, to Romans chapter 1, and let's look at what happens when we might not have that view. Romans 1 verse 18. God is speaking through Paul to the Romans and, and just talking about the state of unredeemed mankind. And verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Many people in the world in which we live, have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In the first book of the Bible, the first truth that we need to know and make sure that we don't allow people to pervert in any way 
is that it was god who created the heavens and the earth everything that exists came from him nothing just happened by chance it wasn't man's doing you see if you get the creator and the creature mixed up you're all out of whack there's only one creator the rest of us are creatures that have been created that's the first truth I think we need to note. Now back in Genesis 1, the next thing I'd like to share is that regarding creation, God spoke it into being. He didn't get hammer and nails and all sorts of materials. or things. He just spoke it. Think about that. Just standing here, I want to just, I'd love to have a milkshake right now. Milkshake. It doesn't work. I must not be God. I don't know, I think that's proof. God spoke it into being. Look at all these different verses that talk about God speaking. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. God said. Uh, go down to verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse. Let there be a heaven. And there was. Go to verse 9. And God said, he spoke, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. And then let, let the dry land appear. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Go to verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, uh, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God said, he spoke creation into being. What does that tell me? God's word is all powerful. It creates things, it changes things, it establishes things. Do I regard God's word in this way? Go to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. This, really, this verse really impacted my heart when I think about my attitude, my, my uh, position that I take when I consider that God's, God just spoke creation into being. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In other words, God spoke by his word. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Go to verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. In other words, reverence him. Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We'll see in the next message that I bring in November in chapter 3 of Genesis. The first thing Satan does through the serpent is he casts doubt. And then he directly contradicts God's word. He says, you're not going to die if you eat that fruit. You have those messages in the world in which we live all the time that come against the truth of the spoken word of God. If you don't stand in awe of it, 
if you don't reverence it, if it's not a part of your life, you're going to be swept away in the lies and falsehood of this world. I want to read you a few words from my daughter. Uh, Betsy's a, a worship leader and writes a lot. She has a, a website called Simple Offerings, if you ever want to check it out. But she was talking about the power of the word. She had just been on a spiritual retreat. I think after having three kids, she just decided, I need some time alone with God. So a few months ago, was it a year ago, a few months ago, something like that. Do you remember? No. In the past, she went on this weekend retreat, and all she did was read the word for several hours, about 30 hours. So here's what she says, uh, kind of writing after that. Following that weekend of Bible study, I was filled with new appreciation, reverence, and reliance upon God's word. I desired to know the wisdom within. I desired to soak my tired heart in its pages. Some of you may be able to identify. I desired to have large portions of God's truth floating around in my head and my mouth all throughout the day. These were things I had not previously wanted, and the wanting itself was a gift from the Lord. It has been said that the more time you spend with something, the more precious it becomes. And this certainly rings true. It seems the more time we spend feasting on God's word, the hungrier we become. The more time we spend feasting on God's word, the hungrier we become. And then she says, this article is a direct result of the weekend I spent with the Lord. I felt called to increasingly enjoy, honor, and teach God's word in my home and to encourage other believers to do likewise. When I look at the state of our world, the thing that scares me the most is the growing number of Christians who have no idea what the Bible says. I mean, all of us fall short of what we should be able to, to know and to apply in God's word, really, when you think about it. We let other things creep in instead of being in the word. So we need to spend time. So then she says, Christians, we need to spend time each day uh, within these life-giving words because they are a light to our path, the anchor for our soul, the standard by which we measure everything in our daily sustenance. Daily, not weekly, not monthly, daily sustenance. Church, we need to pour God's breathed out words through our minds and hearts daily so we can be washed, renewed, transformed. These are not empty words. They are your life from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Then she closes with this thought. You see, we're in grave danger if we do not know the truth that God has graciously revealed through his word. And we are in grave danger if in knowing the truth we disregard it as outdated or too hard or less weighty than our own understanding. And finally, we're in grave danger if in knowing and believing God's truth we lack the courage or discipline to walk in his ways. This is not easy, but this is what it looks like to be a disciple. And thankfully, we have a helper, the Holy Spirit. Our gracious God has not required anything of us that he has not already provided. So is there a word from the Lord? Yes. And we should stand in awe of him and his word. God spoke it into being. God will speak things into your being, into your life as well. 
if you'll open your heart and your mind to his word and stay in it. Be committed to it. Remember, it's your life. I don't know if you can tell, but I hardly ever miss a meal. I mean, I love food. There's, there's, in 40 years of being married, can you, can you remember, maybe, maybe there's been a day or two where we've fasted, but not very often. I mean, I do not miss, I require that food to keep going. But I'll confess, even as a pastor, sometimes there are days, oh, I might grab a little bit here and there, or I might study to prepare, but in terms of reading the word, just to be transformed as a man, I fall short. But knowing that God's word is so powerful that creation was spoken into being and that we should stand in awe of him and his word, maybe that thought will help us to step up and let God be God through his word in our life. Third thing I want to share is that God created everything in six 24-hour days. Now, I realize there are a lot of Bible believers, Bible-believing teachers and theologians that may not agree with that, but I personally think that it actually happened as what I think the Bible teaches, that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days. Um, look at verse 31, if you will, chapter 1, verse 31 through 2, 3. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let me just share with you um, a few quotes from different people. Uh, I'm not here to try to forcefully get you to see things as I see them in Scripture, but I just want to share a little bit of what I have and hopefully do it in a gracious way. And Maybe this is an area where iron can sharpen iron. We can continue to study this and look at it. But uh, here's one from Ken Ham, who's with Answers to Genesis, the one the organization that created uh, the Creation Museum and the Ark Experience, okay, that group. He says, if the six days of creation are really geologic ages of millions of years, then the gospel message is undermined at its foundation because it puts death, disease, thorns, and suffering before the fall. In other words, if God, after the sixth day, saw all that he had made and said it was very good. Well, if those days are millions of years and animals and you know are dying and there's death and disease there, God's saying that's very good? I don't think so. Just doesn't make sense. This idea also shows an erroneous approach to Scripture that the Word of God can be interpreted on the basis of the fallible theories of sinful people. We all allow this to happen. We hear thoughts of men, even what we consider to be good, biblical, Christ-centered men and women who speak and they influence us. And we're not like the Bereans sometimes. We don't go back and check and read the word to check it out for ourselves and to make sure it's so. So let me encourage all of us to do that because, you know, we, we want to know the truth. We want to step back and look and step in close and look and, and share with one another. So I'm just letting you know where this pastor is at in terms of his understanding of, of creation. 
Uh, here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a uh, great evangelist and pastor. Uh, this is uh, 1877. This quote comes. It says, We are invited, brethren, most earnestly to go away from the old-fashioned belief of our forefathers because of the supposed discoveries of science. So evolution and other scientific thought were beginning to creep in, and so he's speaking against that. He says, what is science? And no offense to anybody who's a science teacher. I'm glad Marlis is not here today. But anyway, he says, what is science? The method by which man tries to conceal his ignorance. Now, do we discover things by science? Yes. I mean, God has a whole vast world out there, and the scientific uh, approach and method can discover things that we don't know, and as long as it doesn't contradict God's word... You know, all truth is God's truth, as, as I learned when I was a, a Christian school uh, principal. But anyway, sometimes science says something, and it's not truth. Like scientists way back in the day thought the earth was flat. Well, that didn't pan out. And you can kind of go on and on with those kinds of things. So we always have to use this as our standard for truth. This doesn't tell us everything, so there's things to, to look at and to discover on the earth and to apply methodology by, by which you can discover what God has made and all those kind of things, but it shouldn't be the standard. God's word should be the standard. He says it should not be so, but so it is. You're not, we're not to be dogmatic in theology, my brethren. That is considered wicked. But for scientific men, it's the correct thing. You are never to assert anything very strongly, but scientists may boldly assert what they cannot prove, it may demand a faith far more credulous than any we possess. I think it takes greater faith to believe that there was a single cell of slime and everything developed from that, as opposed to say, no, there's an all-good and gracious and knowing God that spoke creation into being. I think it takes less faith here than it would over here. I don't know. But I think that's what Spurgeon's saying. Then he uses the word forsooth. When's the last time you ever said forsooth? you got, you got to read these old guys once in a while because they bring out words that are good. He says, forsooth, you and I are to take our Bibles and shape and mold our belief according to the ever-shifting teachings of so-called scientific men. What folly is this? Well, he had an opinion. I think he spoke it. But here's, here's a quote from uh, Marcus Dodds, who was a, a 19th century liberal professor. He says, if, for example, the word day... All right, and in the Hebrew it's yom or yom. If, for example, the word day in Genesis chapter 1 does not mean a period of 24 hours, the interpretation of Scripture is hopeless. Now, I'm not meaning to offend by this point, but I'm bringing it up because I feel very strongly that we need to read the word in a literal way, historical way, grammatically correct way, and take it and remember the audience it's being spoken to and what the normal word would mean because if not and things are so loose and symbolic then it's going to be hard to interpret anything you can just spiritualize it instead of just saying well there wasn't really a, a, a Jonah you know and there wasn't really a whale experience that just means and then go on to say what you think it might mean okay so let's look at the points on your outline there uh, the first point is that, that yom or yom, uh, the, the Hebrew word for day, with a number, in other words, the first day, the second day, the third day, as Joanne read through that first chapter, you notice it always says day one, day two, day three. So yom with a number is used 410 times in the Old Testament outside of Genesis. 
And every time it's, it is referring to a literal 24-hour day. Yom with evening and morning is used 23 times, and it always indicates a 24-hour period of time. And then light and darkness that we see in that day one, when it talks about light and dark and day and night, obviously means an ordinary day in the language that we would understand, the normal use of the language. And then if you will, go to Exodus chapter uh, 20. This is when the nation uh, is out of Egypt and God gives them the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, you've got Genesis and then Exodus, go to chapter 20, verse 8. Exodus 28 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, female servant, livestock, sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, if a day means millions of years and you're supposed to work six days, you're never going to get to the Sabbath day. You're just going to work and work and work, which, Chris, it probably feels like at times that's what you're doing, right? It just doesn't make sense. And it naturally, and so let me, let me read another couple of quotes and it kind of brings this into, into uh, focus. Says, if we're if we're prepared to let the words of the language speak to us in accord with the context, which is very important. You read words and sentences and paragraphs within the context of an area, of a chapter, of a book of the Bible, and of the whole Bible. You read it within the context of all of those things. And normal definitions, all right, normal definitions, without being influenced by outside ideas. Then the word for day found in Genesis 1, which is qualified by a number, by evening and morning, and in day 1 by the words light and darkness, obviously means an ordinary day. Now, this, is some, this next thing is something I think is very... I haven't never seen this before. I hadn't thought about it. The seven-day week has no basis outside of Scripture. Why do we have a seven-day week? Well, it's from God. He gave us the seven-day week. He worked six days and he rested one day, all right? In this Old Testament passage, which we just looked at, Exodus 20, 11, God commands his people, Israel, to work six days and rest for one, thus giving us a reason why he deliberately took so long, as long as six days, to create everything. He set the example for man. Did God need six days to create the heavens and the earth? No. He could have just spoke it all in the blink of an eye, and it would have been there. But God had a purpose for taking six days to create the, the earth and then resting. And it sets that example for us. And so a good rhythm for us is to be productive six days of the week and then to take a day where we worship, where we rest, uh, where we in, enjoy companionship with our family or whatever, take a walk. Do something different that just allows your body, soul, and spirit to have a restful experience. When you abuse that pattern that God has set and you just work and work and work and work and work and work, eventually it catches up to you because God set an example and he's, that's, he, he did that for our own good. Okay, I'm going to move on. 
Again, if I stepped on some toes, I'm sorry. You can come up and step on mine afterwards. The fourth point I want to share from the creation story is that God created mankind in his image. Uh, look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Yeah, I'm talking about all of you now, okay? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Jump to 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Why did God create man in his image? In his likeness. To have an, an intellect and a, and a will and emotions. Because God wanted a relationship with mankind. He created us like him in certain respects so that there was an avenue of relationship that was going on. Now, as I go to another passage that starts with in the beginning, John chapter 1, all right, says in the beginning, and by the way, the in the beginning in John chapter 1 happened a long time before the in the beginning in, in Genesis chapter 1. Because in the beginning in John chapter 1 talks about an eternity past within the Godhead. So in the beginning was the word, the logos, the full expression of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So who is this Logos? Who is this full expression of God who actually was with God and was God and created everything that was created was created through Him? Who is that? That's Jesus. Look at verse 14. And the word, this logos, this full expression of God, all of who God is, became flesh and dwelt among us so that we can behold his glory. Full of grace and truth from the Father, the Son. So not only did God create us in his image, but then God became like us the key to the rescue. In creation, he makes us like him. In the rescue, he becomes like us. Why? So that this perfect God-man can be the bridge between holy God and sinful mankind. Jesus bridges that gap. Why? Because God's still interested in a relationship. He still wants a people. He wants a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people. God still desires that. So not only did God create you for that, but then when mankind falls and is separated from God because of sin and experiences sin and death, God begins to promise that a rescue is coming. Put your faith in that promise. Put your faith in that promise. And that's what the patriarchs did in the nation of Israel. And, and, and God was a light through them at times, pointing toward the Messiah that eventually would come, who would seek and save the lost. The rescue would happen. And then after that happens in your life, then God begins the restoration process. We become new creatures in Christ. And we're saved from the penalty of sin. And we're in the process of being saved from the power of sin. 
And one day we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. And that's what the video was showing there at the end. And we sang about, Lord, why don't you come on back? Some of us are ready. Anytime. Right, Mary? Anytime. All right, let's go to point number five about creation. God gave mankind a purpose. Wow. Look at this purpose in verse 28. So after God created them male and female, it says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That was the charge. I created you. You are my authority on earth. Subdue it. Rule over it. Here it is. Man has purpose. And then God put Adam and Eve in the garden to take care of it. You know, we still have a purpose, a multiplication purpose as well. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is about ready to ascend to the Father. And so what we know is the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and multiply yourselves. Make disciples. Yes, we are to continue to procreate and, and to create human beings. But even more important, we're to create born-again human beings, disciples. And that's why God established the home and the church so that we can help one another see that happen. We still have that kind of purpose to multiply and to make disciples. Point number six, God gave mankind one prohibition. Now, you would have thought just one prohibition. He, you know, Adam and Eve could have kept from doing this one thing that he told them not to. You ever have somebody say, now, don't, I'm going to leave now, but don't, don't touch that dessert. And it's just sitting there looking you in the face. Chris, you know what I'm talking about when something like that happens? I mean, it's just, a, there's just a terrible pull to go grab a fork or a spoon or even just put your hand just, you know. Or ha have you ever been at weddings sometimes where there's this beautiful wedding cake? They probably spent, you know, a whole bunch of money for that cake. And sometimes I go past them and I'm just thinking, I'm just going to reach out and just grab a hunk of that and just eat. I, 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 do have an, I do have problems. I'm sorry. I have problems when it comes to food. But anyway, now where was I? Oh, yes, one prohibition. Genesis 1, verse 16. I'm sorry, verse chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree. You can have them all. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And again, when I'm back up here in November, we're chapter 3, you'll see that come about. That death, that separation from fellowship with the Father begins and their bodies begin to die and one day their spirit leaves their bodies. God always wants the best for us. So if he says do this and don't do that, I mean, the only... He, he wants our best. He, he's always telling us to cling to what is good. He, he's trying to prevent us from destruction things that will harm us and harm other people. Uh, for instance, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, right before 
the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan and goes into the promised land after 40 years of just wandering around. And why did they wander around? Well, because they didn't obey God's word, right? Here, here, here's what the Lord said to them through, uh, through Moses. Deuteronomy 36 or 15. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. God gives us choice. We have volition. We can make choices to choose him or not choose him. Choose his way, not choose his way. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and what? Multiply. God, that's God's desire for us. He wants us to live and he wants us to reproduce, to make disciples to live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That's what God said to Adam and Eve. Eat everything but this tree. Choose life. God wants us to experience life, abundant life, eternal life, a blessed life. That's, that's what your heavenly Father desires for you. And then he goes on in verse, nine, uh, verse 20 to say, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life. You know, when Jesus in, in John 15 is talking about the branch and the vine, he says, you know, I'm the vine and you're the branch, and as long as you're connected to me, you'll have life. As long as you abide in me and my word, you'll have life. As long as you abide in me, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Everything that's good, I desire for you. We sometimes can't appreciate the goodness of God because we're not that good. The only time we're really good is when the life of Christ is being expressed through us. You know, when somebody called Jesus, hey, good teacher. He said, why are you calling me good? Knowing that he didn't know who he was, just thought he was a, another rabbi. No one's good but God. It's true. Romans 3, check out that. Anyway, Romans 6.33 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And this, I didn't have this down, but I'd like, if you wouldn't mind, turn to John chapter 3. Let me just show you this. Because God still has one prohibition that he puts out there that we cannot do. And I'll show you what that is. John 3, verse 16. You ever heard John 3, 16? That sort of ring a bell? Even football players know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, God wants us to have life and life is found in him and in his son. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The only thing that will keep you out of heaven 
is this one prohibition where you do not not believe or when you do not believe in the Son. So the prohibition would be expressed, the only thing you can't do is to not, not believe. Is that a, that's a double negative, right? Is that, is that English? A double knot? Oh, I didn't know I could tie knots. I did. I just tied a double knot. Thank you, Chris. Well, anyway, all right. So you want life? You need Christ. That's where life is found, all right? So, last point is this. God created the institution of marriage in the creation. So, chapter 2, verse 18. God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. How many of you ladies would agree with that? Any of you ladies out there, it's not good for the man to be alone? We do need supervision every once in a while. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. All right, jump down to verse 21, just to save a little time. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. He talks about husbands loving your wives, wives submitting, respecting to your husbands. But this is what he says in verse 31 and 32 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, see, it's somewhat of a mystery. How do man, husband and wife become this one flesh? You know, something mysterious. But then he says, well, I'm not even really talking about that. Marriage, the mystery of marriage in the one flesh, just points to something else even greater. He says, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. There's a mystery of how Christ, who's the head, the bridegroom, and the bride become one. But that's the ultimate marriage. Christ and his bride becoming one. And we're in that process, the restoration, being restored to our bridegroom, and one day it's going to be complete. And you know what that day looks like? It's in Revelation 19. The four hallelujahs come from Revelation 19, and the Lord is about ready to return and to restore all things. And this is what he says about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse 6, Revelation 19, 6, speaking about this ultimate Marriage, and, and think about this, as we're looking at the big picture, God establishes marriage clear back here in Genesis, and now it's going to be fully restored in the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, God has these themes of his love and this unity and this oneness and this bonding throughout all of Scripture. And it's our privilege to read it, to study it, and to put it all together, and to appreciate the fine points, but to also see the greatness and the vastness and the majesty of the larger points of Scripture. Move in close, then step back and look away. All the while, praying. Two steps. Pray, keep doing this. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! Oh, I felt good. 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride. That's us, folks. We are the bride has made herself ready and you are in the process of making yourself ready. No, not you, but Christ is in the process of making you ready. You should have caught me on that one. It was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure. What's that? The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Only done through the power of Christ. You don't have any righteousness. All you have is the righteousness of Christ. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And we've already discovered this morning that God's true word is powerful. Hi, Matt. Hey, I love you too, buddy. Yeah, thanks for the encouragement. One of the things that I have enjoyed as a pastor the most in about 30 years, and I don't know how many wedding ceremonies I performed, normally I spend a few weeks and sometimes even months with the bride and groom. And we're just talking about life, we're talking about marriage, we're talking about their differences and how those things are going to be resolved and conflict resolution and communication and how each of you handles money and you know kids and all those kind of things we talk through. By the time I get through with the premarital counseling, I know those folks pretty well. And, and they know me, and, and we've conversed, and we've gotten close. So when the marriage ceremony actually happens, they're normally facing me up on the stage or wherever and have their backs to everybody else. Now, now maybe the wedding party has a chance to kind of see them from the side, but I get the full view of their faces, all right? The beauty of, of this is, is to look into the eyes of the bride and the groom and to see their love for one another. It is such a tremendous thing to be in that position. What a privileged position to just be able to look into their eyes and to see the bride and the bridegroom and the love that's just there. And I'm just thinking, when the bride sees our bridegroom, up close and personal, and he's looking in our eyes, and we're looking in his. Oh, what glory that will be. So, Father, we look forward to that day when we will have the privilege of being in your presence and looking into the eyes of our Savior, our Redeemer, our Restorer, our Rescuer, Lord, thank you for the greatest story ever told, that we're a part of that story. Thank you for making us, restoring us, redeeming us, wanting a relationship with sinful creatures who have rebelled and run from you. Prone to wander, Lord, my heart knows it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Here's our hearts. Now take and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.